Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis today. And for the first time, I'm pretty sure ever, Jim, they all come from the op-ed page of the New York Times. Uh, usually, I wouldn't even subject dead fish to the pages of the uh, the New York Times, especially just how woke that particular department has gotten. But they, they're on an interesting uh pattern over the past, uh, well, right now, of uh, having columnists write columns about things they were wrong about. You don't get that a lot in politics, whether it's politicians, journalists, whatever. So uh, curious to see your reaction to these particular stories. But of course, as uh, most folks know, the, the breaking news this morning is that President Biden, as far as we know for the first time, has tested positive for COVID. So according to the White House, he tested positive this morning. Uh, Very mild symptoms, uh, obviously isolating from the staff for now, but uh, still um, working as much as uh, he would have otherwise done, just probably from the residents. And so, uh, Jim, I don't know that we have enough to say to make it a full martini. Obviously, we wish the president well, uh, make a full recovery, and that uh, nobody else around him gets it. Yeah, you know, you do hear that first headline. You go, oh my God, you know, my people, lots of people might say, oh, my God, he's, he's almost 80. Is he going to be okay? Well, look, uh, he's vaxxed, he's boosted. They've already got him on the medication Paxlovid. And, uh, you know, he's surrounded by the best doctors in the world. We went through this in the tail end of Trump's presidency. Uh, he recovered. Biden's probably going to be just fine. Um, and if the president is, you know, on bed rest or taking it easy, for a couple of, for a week or so, that's fine. The country can handle this, you know, uh, with all issues of opposition and criticism set aside for a little bit. Get well, Mr. President. Hopefully we see you up and around real soon. Yes. And I think from what we're seeing, even though the numbers are up, the hospitalizations and the fatalities are down due to the mutations and so forth. And so uh, hopefully uh, he's over it soon. All right, Jim, let's talk about uh, op-ed number one here from the uh, New York Times. <laughs> and it's certainly not one. You would expect from the um, the New York Times, uh, including Brett Stevens, who uh, was one of the Wall Street Journal editorial writers and then went hardcore anti-Trump for the uh, New York Times. And I'm pretty sure he's still there. But his mea culpa here is that he was wrong about Trump voters. And so here's uh, a little bit of an excerpt from that. He says, Trump voters had a powerful case to make that they had been thrice betrayed by the nation's elites. First after 9-11, when they had borne much of the brunt of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, only to see Washington fumble and then abandon the efforts. Second, after after the financial crisis of 2008, when so many were being laid off, even as the financial class was being bailed out. Third, in the post-crisis recovery, in which years of ultra-low interest rates were a bonanza for those with investable assets and brutal for those without. Oh, and then came the great American cultural revolution of the 2010s in which traditional practices and beliefs regarding same-sex marriage, sex-segregated bathrooms, personal pronouns, meritocratic ideals, uh, race-blind rules, reverence for patriotic symbols, the rules of romance, the presumption of innocence, and the distinction between equality of opportunity and outcome became more and more not just passe but taboo. It's one thing for social mores to evolve over time, aided by respect for differences of opinion. It's another for them to be abruptly imposed by one side on another with little democratic input, but a great deal of moral bullying. Jim, I don't agree with Brett Stevens a lot, but uh, I think he has encapsulated the fed-up nature of the Trump voter from 2016 and beyond way better than most Republicans in their own party understand. 
First of all, I'd really love to see how the New York Times editors pitch this to their group of columnists, because I think it's a terrific idea. I think it is a good thing for those of us who write for a living and who are involved in the debate about ideas and government and policy and politics and all that to step back and periodically think, huh, where was I wrong? We're all human. We're all capable of making mistakes. And if you write long enough about American politics, sooner or later, you're going to make some mistakes. And I wonder, you know, if people ask me just off the top of my head, what do I, what dumb things have I done in my career? Uh, my first question is how much time do you got? But uh, <laughs> look, if you go back to 2009, I can think of raving about Bob McDonald and him not quite living up to the hype there. Um, in 2016, I voted for Egg McMuffin, and we all see how that turned out. Uh, I hope he paid his vendors. I hope he did. I don't want to see him become the next senator from Utah. And, um, you know, just other various points where, you know, uh, I've backed someone and they've turned out to be, or, you know, supported someone, and they've ended up being much more flawed than I saw at the time. Brett Stevens seems like the only columnist who really took this assignment seriously and who really looked at his body of work and tried to see where he had missed something important. And I think that's that section you described there. You don't have to endorse every aspect of Trump to recognize that the current concerns of the people who voted for him were shunted aside or dismissed or poo-pooed or ridiculed or, for a very long time. And I recall, you know, trying to describe to my sons why people had voted for Trump because they had heard nothing but, you know, nasty things about him. And I was like, well, look, there were a lot of people in this country who felt like no one was listening to them. They felt like they'd been forgotten. They felt like they'd been left behind. They lived in communities where the mill had shut down, the factory had shut down, the mine had shut down, that they were basically not part of the American story anymore. They had been cropped out of the picture. And Donald Trump, for all his other flaws, and Lord knows the man has many, made these people feel like someone was listening to them again. Donald Trump made these people feel like they mattered. And that's important. And that's something to recognize. And so kudos to Brett Stevens for encapsulating this and recognizing this. Um, I hope uh, this is more widely uh, recognized and, and kind of digested by the body politic that you cannot simply dismiss uh, people as bitter clingers as Barack Obama did or as the deplorables as Hillary Clinton did. I don't think too many folks on the left are really going to reconsider this, but nonetheless, kudos for Brett Stevens for taking the assignment seriously and coming up with a really good example of a judgment he wishes he could take back. Yeah, I agree with that. And remember that the left, like Hillary Clinton with deplorables, like you said, and, and the media basically tried to sum up these voters uh, as racists and mouth-breathing Neanderthals and low-educated people who just didn't, didn't get it. No, they got it. They just didn't get what they voted for from a bunch of other people regardless of whether they're Republicans or Democrats. A lot of these blue-collar people had voted Democrat for years. A lot of them had voted for Barack Obama. That's how you got uh, shiftovers in 2016 in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania uh, that Obama had won you know, relatively comfortably. And so... And I still think there's a lot of people who just see this as some great anomaly in political history rather than understanding why it happened. And look, whether Donald Trump runs in 2024 or not, and if he does, whether he wins or not in 2024, there's a political future coming relatively soon where Donald Trump's not going to be on the ballot. And if Republicans want to keep that $74 million and plus, as we grow, hopefully, with other uh, folks coming over, Hispanics most especially, according to recent polling, you better understand what drove these people to vote red in the first place. And if you can't do that, they're not going to stay there. And I think that streak of Trumpist populism 
is probably never going to leave the Republican Party. And certainly if it leaves the Republican Party, I don't think the Republican Party will be all that successful, uh, certainly not nationwide. Um, it may wax, it may wane, it may have cycles where it's a big factor, it may have cycles where it's a smaller factor, but I think it is in the party to stay, at least for the foreseeable future. And I think, again, looking back at my assessments of 2016, um, you know, lots of Americans had good reasons to lose faith in the institutions of government, had good reasons to lose, not just because of Obama and his mistakes, but because of the you know impact of the war in Iraq, the sense that Afghanistan was going on forever, uh, the sense that government simply didn't listen to them anymore and that uh, big corporations could make unbelievable mistakes and not be held accountable either by Democrats or Republicans. There, you know, there, there was a, a lot of needed change there. And you can argue about whether Trump was the ideal vessel for those changes. But I think uh, it is good to recognize that this wasn't just, oh, he was a famous reality show star. And so it's again, kudos to Brett Stevens. Yeah. Policy wise, I think they've they've got a lot to be happy with from the four years Trump was in office. There were some obviously other areas where uh, Trump probably did himself more damage uh, than anything else. But uh, the media, of course, more slanted there than than ever before. So, Jim, as we uh, move on from uh, good to bad, let's also take a moment to talk about one of your favorite things in life, and that's the X chair. Okay, that might be putting a little bit much, but one of your favorite inanimate objects in life is definitely your X-Chair. And as you read editorials here, you definitely love your X-Chair. X-Chair has made my time at my desk not only more productive, it's honestly my favorite place to sit for any reason. Not only does X-Chair's patented Dynamic Variable Lumbar, or DVL, offer the ultimate customized support, but my X-Chair can give me a massage or heat up or cool down. Now, thanks to the X-Chair's new FS360 armrests, I can adjust my armrests to the perfect position. All of these unique X-Chair features help the hours at my desk fly by in complete comfort. That's why I love my X-Chair. Go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X, chair, M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com. Or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 per month. One more time, xchairmartini.com. All right, Jim, on to the bad martini now from this list of I was wrong, New York Times op-eds. And for that one, you go to Gail Collins. She says she was wrong about Mitt Romney, and then in parentheses, and his dog, where she boasts in the uh, early uh, paragraphs here that she mentioned that Mitt Romney went on vacation with the dog strapped to the roof of his car more than uh, 80 times. And she doesn't really have any regrets about that. And so then she talks about how he left out one word on the binders full of women line. The whole point was that he was trying to get more women on his staff and he left out binders full of women's resumes or whatever he intended to say there. And it came out binders full of women in the debate. And so instead of being a feather in his cap for diversity, it uh, became a, a punchline because the libs didn't want to focus on the point that he was actually uh, trying to hire more women. So, Jim, um, the most I can probably say about Mitt Romney from my perspective right now is that I still think he would have been a better president than Barack Obama. Not thrilled with uh, a lot of what he's done here as senator, but uh, he's voted the right way on judicial nominations and other things most of the time. So uh, what do you make of Gail Collins uh, sort of saying she was wrong, but not really being sorry for any of it? I suppose this op-ed assignment by the New York Times is a little bit like that um, job interview question, what's your worst flaw or something like that? 
And you know, there are all kinds of really BSE answers people can give, like, oh, I care too much, you know, or some sort of things that where they, they try to make it sound like it's a criticism or a flaw, but in fact, they're just telling you how great they are. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, they asked, uh, you know, uh, Gail Collins, look back at the entirety of your career. What do you regret? When did you get it wrong? And she comes up on Mitt Romney, which a lot of people will say, oh, okay, because, you know, Mitt Romney, what, you know, first of all, if you haven't read Dan McLaughlin's magazine piece, how the 2012 election deranged America, please, you know, finish listening to this podcast and then go read it because one, it's really good. And two, I think a lot of what we see in our politics is because of the lessons the two parties took from that outcome. Um, it, it's too complicated. There's, there's a lot of really good stuff in it that I don't want to summarize here, but basically the demonization of Mitt Romney really altered the way Republicans thought about who they should nominate and was a big factor in the nomination of Donald Trump. Well, Gail Collins, you know, she didn't say, you know, I made fun of Romney for saying Russia was our preeminent geopolitical foe. And uh, I applauded the Barack Obama line, the 80s call, they want their foreign policy back. In retrospect, that was really stupid. I shouldn't have written that. No, no, she says, well, I told the, door, the dog story too many times. Now, did she tell the dog story too many times? Yes, more than 80 times over the course of the campaign. I kind of joked that she had a macro, that, that she just kind of inserted that paragraph in every single column she did. And then she explains it by saying, well, you know, Romney's boring. Horse pucky, and that's not, pucky was not the word I wanted to use there. Gail, but like this, what it basically tells you is that Gail Collins is a shallow person who hears this kind of anecdote and believes this is the most relevant, pertinent, and important thing you, the New York Times readers, need to know. In the end, I remember she had this also argument about all this, I think it was her, arguing about oh, all these celebrity candidates of GOP, the Herschel Walkers and J.D. Vance and, uh, and Mehmet Oz. And I said, well, there are other candidates out there who you could choose to spotlight Gail Collins, but not only do you not write about them, you don't mention them because you can't remember their names. Right now, if you want to complain about celebrity candidates, do more to spotlight the non-celebrity candidates. But no, no, Gail Collins is perfectly happy to be part of the problem. So when asked, what did you get wrong? The only thing she can really come up with is, well, I thought this, this election cycle was boring. So I kept telling the story about Romney and the dog on the roof it is a pathetic you know, offering of this exercise. And I think it just kind of exhibits the uh, one of the two best examples of the tired, uninspired, boring, predictable, dry, knee-jerk, reflexive left mush that you get from a lot of a lot of columnists on the New York Times op-ed page these days. You said it right there, Jim. Uh, this is what she wrote. The campaign was extremely boring, and I really did have to stretch to find some fun ways to approach it. Look, if you can't find fresh angles or interesting angles over the course of a presidential campaign besides one anecdote from decades earlier, you're in the wrong job. You're either very lazy or just really bad at what you do. And this uh, this admission or whatever we want to call it here, I think is just further proof of it. Yeah, I, ideally, our job of really high profile and I assume well compensated political columnist gigs would be filled by people who are interested in politics. <laughs> yeah, that would be. A- that, that seems like a really, you know, the the other observation somebody once said about all that when you started seeing all of the woke and PC discourse on ESPN, I think it was might have been Jason Whitlock. Somebody said, look, a lot of these younger folks who are ending up as talking heads on ESPN, they're not that into sports. They're really into the politics stuff. Mm-hmm. They really want to do the politics. They're not that into sports. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, if you're not into sports, what are you doing on ESPN? 
that, that seems like a prerequisite. You really should, you know, be interested in what you're doing, particularly at that level. But, you know, I'm, I'm an old fashioned fogey. Like, what do I know? <laughs> in the meantime, Jim, let's talk about another of our sponsors today, brought to you in part by NetChoice. Our country is being rocked by soaring inflation, lackluster leadership and chaos on the world stage. And Americans need their legislators to focus on the issues that matter and ease the economic pain we're all feeling. Instead, senators like Amy Klobuchar are pushing a big government takeover of America's tech industry through progressive regulations that would worsen inflation and make important digital services like Amazon Prime more expensive and harder to use. Conservatives must block progressive pet projects that will raise prices and undermine our world standing. These lawmakers need to keep American innovation the best in the world. So NetChoice wants you to join it in telling Congress to stop rising prices and reject progressive tech regulations like Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about the fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, on to the crazy martini from this series on the New York Times now. And who else was going to end up in the crazy martini besides Paul Krugman? Krugman says, I was wrong about inflation, but... Kind of like what you said earlier about the job question interview. <laughs> he's not really saying he was that wrong, even though he was, of course, and he's consistently wrong. Because remember, he said the economy would tank the second Donald Trump took office. And until COVID came along, the economy was the best it had been in half a century. Uh, and so then, of course, he is saying here that when the American Rescue Plan, better known as the uh, COVID relief bill, $1.9 trillion enacted, by Joe Biden and the Democratic Congress, he said some warned that the package would be dangerously inflationary. Others were fairly relaxed. I was on team relaxed. As it turned out, of course, that was a very bad call. But what exactly did I get wrong? Both the initial debate and the way things have played out were more complicated than I suspect most people realize. You see, this wasn't just a debate between opposing economic ideologies. Just about all the prominent players, from Larry Summers to Dean Baker, were Keynesian economists with more or less center-left political leanings. And we all had similar views, at least in a qualitative sense, about how economic policy works. Everyone in the debate agreed that deficit spending would stimulate demand. Everyone agreed that a stronger economy with a lower unemployment rate would, other things equal, have a higher inflation rate. And then the debate was over magnitudes. Jim, I don't remember Larry Summers talking about magnitudes. I remember him saying this is going to cause inflation. And Paul Krugman, because he's on Team Blue, saying, no, 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 we need to pass this. Democrats want to do this. So uh, here's why, in my estimation, I can spin this as a good thing for our economy. He's flat wrong, and I don't care how he tries to spin it now. It's still getting worse. Yeah, first of all, if being able to determine what you want to happen and what is most likely to happen if doing that was easy, nobody would ever buy lottery tickets. <laughs> nobody would ever gamble, <laughs> right? You're looking at that like, oh, that that roulette wheel that's going to come up on black. That's going to come up on red. I'm just being on number 32, and of course it doesn't, and you end up losing your shirt, right? Krugman also is like another example of how not to admit fault. If Gail Collins was, I'm going to pick the most mundane and stupid thing I've ever, you know, like minor minor league thing I've ever done wrong, and act like I got everything else right, font. You know, that's that's one approach. The other one for, is to put the Paul Krugman, well, it's complicated, and to tap dance for a while. Thinking back to back in my dot-com days, this is you know, 2000 campaign. I was at intellectualcapital.com and policy.com, and we lined up a big interview with Virginia Governor Jim Gilmore. 
you may remember Jim Gilmore for getting 11 votes in Iowa uh, back in the 2016 cycle. But at the time, Gilmore was a fairly big name guy. I think was I think he was head of the RNC. And we scored an interview. We're doing it by phone. We're going to record it. And we're going to transcribe it and put the audio up on the website. And I, you know, organized it all, had it all set up to be able to record the phone call. And, you know, everything was great. And because I was recording it, I didn't really bother taking extensive notes of the interview. Then I conclude, thank the governor, it's great. And the recording device had not worked. We had silence for, you know, this is like a 30 minute interview or something like that. And my coworkers there and we realized, you know, like it was my job to make sure it was recording and it looked like it was recording, but it was not recording. And I have egg on my face. There are one of two ways I can do this. I can try to, you know, cover this up. I can try to delay it. I can, or I can just go into my boss's office and say, I screwed up. I thought it was recording. It wasn't. And I can, I can take my lumps and I was going to take a, you know, I was going to have to eat a, you know, what sandwich and I was going to chew it out and all that stuff. It was not going to be fun, but I could either do it or I could, you know, or I could, but covering it up or trying to delay it was just going to make it worse. So I did the right thing. I went into his office. Yeah. Now after that, like I got, you know, harangued more than once and lots of people said, oh, Jim, are you going to make sure you're recording it twice? And there were all kinds of condescending memos. Let's not make the error Jim did, you know, that kind of stuff. Ouch. I'm not saying it was good, but it would have been, would have been worse if I'd, you know, tried to hide it or cover it up or something like that. Krugman tries to tap dance and try, then Krugman ends with the, well, I, it, I was I wrong? It looks that way, but it's complicated. And he closes with this point of maybe I'm not so wrong after all. Quote, looking ahead, the economy is currently cooling off. The decline in first quarter GDP was probably a quirk. Greg, is it, the Atlanta Fed says the projection is like negative 1.6 for the next quarter. Right. So you can call it a quirk, but the textbook definition of two consecutive quarters of declining GDP is a recession, not a quirk. It continues, quote, but overall growth seems to be running below trend. And private sector economists I talk to mostly believe that inflation either has already peaked or will peak soon. So things may seem less puzzling a few months from now. I don't know. It doesn't seem a lot puzzling to me. We put in $1.9 trillion of new money into an economy that was already recovering. Too much money, chasing too few goods, you get inflation. That, you know, that, that's not the most complicated thing in the world. Go watch the DuckTales episode. It explains it all. So again, three interesting responses to when have you ever been wrong? Um, I think uh, it, it'll be kind of amusing to see the mentality at work in each one of them, Greg. No, absolutely right. Yeah, Jim Gilmore did not do well as a presidential candidate, but I will say this for him. He actually cut my taxes when he was governor of Virginia. He didn't get rid of the entire car tax, which is one of the dumbest taxes on the planet because it's a personal property tax on a car you already own. But he did reduce it because it had gone through several reductions. And uh, Bob McDonnell, he increased it to pay for his boondoggle Mm -hmm. transportation plan, which he promised he would never do. Not that I'm bitter about that at all. But uh, Jim Gilmore actually cut my taxes. So even though he was not uh, ready for presidency, I appreciate the fact that he actually followed through on that. So uh, Glenn Youngkin, if you want to make me happy, cut my taxes. Anyway, Jim. We're, we're very clear on our criteria here at Three Martini. <laughs> That's right. Jim, have a good day. Tomorrow's Friday. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do tell a friend about us as well. Thanks for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us on Friday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. 
Texas Congressman Chip Roy joins me to explain how Biden's intentional border crisis is part of the left's dangerous liberal world order. I'm Sarah Carter on the latest Sarah Carter Show. Congressman Roy and I also discuss why Biden's inaction is an impeachable offense and how the left is, in his words, full of crap in its climate agenda and why it's ruining our military. Don't miss it. Follow The Sarah Carter Show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.